Welcome to Business Resilience Decoded, from Disaster Recovery Journal and its flawless business resilience. Now, here's your host, Vanessa Vaughn. Welcome to Business Resilience Decoded. I am your host, Vanessa Vaughn, the founder and chief resilience officer of Asphalus Advisors. We have an accomplished guest lined up for you today speaking on the topic of high-performing business continuity programs. So let's jump right in and meet our guest, Rob Giffen with Avolution. He is the president and the co-founder. Rob, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So can you tell our listeners more about you and how you got into the world of business continuity and entrepreneurship? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I got in the world of business continuity pretty briefly outside of uh, school. Joined a company called Protivity that did general risk management consulting. Uh, started doing a lot of technology auditing, and, and that kind of led into business continuity. And I just found it, believe it or not, it was the, the sexier part of services offered when the options are technology audit or business continuity. You just you gravitate to the exciting stuff in business continuity. So that's where I really got pretty deeply involved. And after a few years there, uh, working with who's now my business partner, Brian Zawada, we decided that working in a large consulting firm didn't offer us the agility to be able to um, really differentiate in the business continuity space and create a, a company that like perfectly solved the important problems for business continuity professionals. And so that's what we uh, led us to create Avolution about just over 13 years ago now. That's always been our goal, is to create a company that uh, solves the problems of business continuity professionals. So we started with uh, consulting and helping companies from that side. Uh, we eventually added software, and so now we've got a tool called Catalyst that provides on the software side. Uh, and so kind of the, the rest is history. Today, like most of our work, is really focused on kind of half and half. A lot of it's building business continuity programs uh, for, for large and mid-sized organizations. And then a lot of it also is managing and like outsourcing business continuity programs. We have a pretty large practice of just running business continuity programs for organizations. So we've got a, a, a pretty deep set of experiences over the last 10 years or so, you know, hundreds of different programs that we've set up and run and operated and we've been able to build a, a pretty kind of thorough picture of what we find kind of differentiates between what leads to success over time and then what, what leads to, let's call it struggle. So for those of you listening, I have the fortunate opportunity to sit right in front of Rob. We are at the DRJ conference in Orlando, Florida, yeah. and I am getting entrepreneur vibes from him right now. So DRJ has been in existence for 30 years, and this conference is their 60th. You talked about adding value, um, solving problems, which is what true entrepreneurs, that's what we're here for. So hats off to you and your team, and congratulations on the, on the success. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, so what are some of the common challenges that you see in business continuity? You have a broad range of experience, and then your your team does as well. What are those top three to five things that you guys are seeing? Well, you know, it's evolved over time, and it's been really interesting. If you go back, it's close to eight years now, we were huge proponents of first BS 25999 and then what became ISO 22301, because at that time, we saw a lot of the struggle being around like consistent methodology. And ultimately, you know, we'd been doing business continuity for like five or six years at that point. And we thought the BS 25999, which for people's context, essentially kind of became 22301 with a few modifications. We thought it was a great embodiment of what we thought we did differently. We thought it was like our kind of unique approach turned into a standard. So, so we loved that. And at that time, we thought that was kind of one of the big problems was standardization of methodology and, and getting people kind of on the same page. Today, 
what we see honestly is kind of like a little bit of a disconnect. It's kind of interesting. There's still a lot of talk about methodology and like what's the right approach and things like that. But what we found, even to take two organizations that are both implementing ISO 22301, they both followed as much as possible. One of them over the long term becomes very successful with it, the other doesn't. What we started to realize is that just following a standard like that or a methodology like that is not the answer. It's not the, the complete solution to assure success, I guess is the way I would say it. And so we started hunting for what's the thing that will maybe not assure success, but lead to a high likelihood of success. What we found are kind of six key elements that are a little bit aside from most, most methodology uh, setups that really distinguish between what leads to a successful business continuity program and, and what doesn't. That's what's led us to kind of pull those together as well as add some of the specificity. So, so what's, what's true about all six of these ingredients is that in, in most cases they are tactical, mm. which is a funny thing to say, right? Like everyone wants to be strategic, but what we found is that the tactics are what make a lot of the difference in, in these programs. And so we've gotten relatively specific about some of the tactics that are needed to be able to uh, drive a business continuity program kind of to the next level. And, and that's what we kind of put into the, this set of six ingredients. We've, over time, started to call it a, the business continuity operating system because like an operating system, it is tactical. It's about like the actions that are needed to take. And so it's not meant to replace ISO 22301. We think 22301 is a great standard for the umbrella of what an organization should achieve. But what we're trying to provide are the tactics that are proven that we know will lead to success. So... What I took away from what you said is that we cannot just follow a procedure just to follow a procedure. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so um, that tees us up to our next question. What are the six ingredients that drive business continuity success? Yeah. So uh, I'm going to go through them briefly. I'll, I'll linger on a few and I'm going to gloss over a few because we could, you know, do uh, an hour just on We these. could stay here all day. Exactly. <laughs> so... So the first one, we call it frame, but you can think of it as focus. This is probably the most important and the biggest struggle point for a lot of organizations is getting clear about what you're really trying to achieve. And we embody that with getting everyone on the same page, the executive team and the people involved in business continuity on the same page about four innocuously simple questions, which are, why do we do business continuity? Like, why are we doing this? What are we trying to protect? which is um, getting clear about what products and services that you're trying to protect as a business, how much business continuity is needed, which is getting clear about like what type of timeframes, what's the risk tolerance uh, around those products and services, and then who will be involved in the business continuity program, getting clear about the, the people that are gonna be involved. And so that frame step is making sure that everyone involved in the program knows the answers to those four questions and they all share them. Like, it's not about getting an answer for us. It's about everyone agreeing that these are the, this is what we're doing, this is why. And that largely just adds a huge amount of energy to the program because finally everyone has permission to focus and exclude all the other stuff and just kind of drive the things that'll make the biggest difference. So that's the first one frame. The next two we'll, we'll go through quickly. Process, having a documented process, like lit, literally written down, a simple one, doesn't have to be crazy, but written down, and training everyone to follow it. Everyone follows a consistent process and, and using it by everybody. Commonly uh, overlooked aspect of, of running a, a process like this. Third one is participation. Again, many people think that that's a relatively straightforward thing. 
we look at it as, have you clearly defined the roles that people are playing? Even if they're part-time, what role are they playing in the program and what do you expect of them? Have you written that down and they've looked at it and said, yes, I can do that? That's step one, which is relatively easy but often overlooked. And then step two is getting the right people into those roles. Mm -hmm. And by right people, we think of it as, um, again, briefly, do they get the role? Like, do they literally get it? Does it connect with them? Do they want to do the role? And do they have the capacity to do the role? Those are the three questions we ask to, to figure out if we've got the right people. And in many cases, you know, it's, it's just not the right folks, and so we need to have that conversation. Like, we typically just ask the person that's in the role, like, do you get it? Do you want it? Do you have the capacity to do it? And they know. They, they know the answer. And so that um, drives a, a lot of Im improvement right there. Fourth one is engagement. Engagement, what we mean by that is essentially having great meetings. And we've got a whole process to make sure that we have great meetings with the right people on the right topics, and just doing that changes the whole tenor of the program because people are coming to meetings knowing that they're going to be, one, called on to participate, two, forced to make decisions, and three, talk about things that they care about. And once you do those three things, you find that people stop half showing up to meetings. What does it look like to half show up to a meeting? Like, you know, like, can't go through the motions, and I think people can imagine. Fifth piece is measurables, metrics. They're important, you can't get away from them. People struggle with them a lot. We just break them down into two pieces, and I can't go, I won't have enough time to go too deep into this, but the two pieces are activities and compliance metrics, which are the easy kind. It's like, did you do a BIA? Did you do a plan? Did you do an exercise? It's typically, did you do? Most organizations don't have metrics. If they do, they have activities and compliance metrics. The other piece of that is products and services metrics, and that if we have figured out the frame questions and understand what we're trying to protect, Products and services metrics then feed that back to the executive committee to be able to understand what's the actual capability to deliver on those products and services, what gaps exist, what are the risks, and having measurables around that that you can clearly um, share with executives, it's a great conversation for them to have. So that's the measurables piece. And then the fifth piece is the improvement of the program. So everyone, I think, recognizes that business continuity is iterative and it's, got, it's not gonna be perfect the first time, but can you demonstrate, can you show kind of empirically the ways that the program has grown over time? And can you predict what are the effective steps to be able to move forward? So with the improvement side, we recommend goals, both quarterly and annual goals that are giving you clarity about what you're trying to achieve in the next quarter, and then short-term actions to be able to be clear about like uh, for your team, what you're gonna do in the next couple of weeks. And then the third thing of improvement which we just love is um, the idea of experiments. And so these aren't goals or actions or anything, they're just things that we're gonna try. And what we found is that experiments is a magic word. Whenever you use it, everyone's guard goes down. They're like, oh, you're just doing an experiment? Oh, that's fine, it doesn't matter. <laughs> you can do whatever. Uh, so, so if people aren't using the term experiment, it is totally a magic word and everyone's cool. Uh, you wanna do some kind of crazy test? Just call it an experiment. <laughs> it'll, go, it'll go through no problem. Thanks, I'm gonna steal that word from you. Yeah, fine, it's, it's we're just totally gonna do an experiment. Magic. Yeah, it's just do an experiment. Yep. So those are the six pieces, and you know, like I said, there are pieces of them that touch into some of the different existing methodologies, but what we found is when those things are present and, and working well, you know, there's fuel for the, the whole rest of the program. So a few thoughts come to mind. One is when you mentioned frame. To me, the frame is like the foundation, and it's the building block. Right. And it's interesting because I meet organizations that sometimes don't really understand, well, why do you have to do that? Why do you want to know that? And I think it's a learning opportunity to help coach people on, to your point, 
what is the goal and why are we here? And what are you here to solve? The other thing that you mentioned about the people, so your internal team as well as your clients. So our strategy for hiring is the right seats with the right people doing the right things, right? So how do you make sure that you have the right clients and their internal teams understand what's my role, what am I doing? Do I have the capacity? Do I wanna be here? If so or if not, why or why not? You know what I mean? And how, how, how can we solve for that so that your client is not wasting their time and their energy? And the resources. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so you spoke to a couple of things that we definitely have some alignment there. And then yeah. I have some other questions, but I'll save sure. it towards the end because I heard some key buzzwords I'm going to pull out of right. you. <laughs> definitely. So what resources does Avolution have available to support needs for your customers? So we've created this idea of a business continuity operating system. It's a complete methodology. And the way that we deliver that is in two ways. For new programs, and we work with a lot of companies that just want, you know, even giant Fortune 100 companies, they're starting up their business continuity program, which is not necessarily true. I'm sure they had one one at one point, but like everything, you know, people change and then things, you know, get lost, and so they're they're starting it up. So we have a whole process for helping companies build a business continuity program aligned to BCUS that implements all the, the things that are needed to be able to create the energy to, to move forward. And we work with the program manager to be able to train them up on, on all the pieces so that they can run it going forward. So that's what we call build. And then the other um, side of services that we provide is on what we call evolve. Existing program, want to take it to the next level. Evolve is the, the service that helps them do that. And so that's taking an existing program, understanding what pieces are in place today, and coming up with a game plan to be able to put in uh, all the pieces uh, that are needed to be able to, to be able to make it successful. Uh, between those two, with when we talk about Evolve, that is actually helping companies kind of over time. It's more of like a coaching type of service. It's less intensive. When you think about building a business continuity program, you think about like relatively intense period of work while you do BIAs and all this different stuff. On the Evolve side, we're typically doing more coaching and facilitating and uh, kind of training with the business continuity program manager. In some cases, we might help refresh BIAs and things like that throughout the process, but the core of our focus is in getting those six elements in place and training the business continuity program manager to be able to deliver them. So those are the, the main two resources. We're also working on you know, some additional content and providing tools online. You know, we're at DRJ today. We just provided a couple of tools to uh, folks in, in a session that focus on some of these pieces. And so over the next couple of months, we'll be releasing more of the tools that we use internally for, for folks to be able to pick up and adopt. So how does BCOS help an experienced practitioner, since we're here with DRJ, yeah. and we have quite a few of those, versus someone who's new to the industry? Yeah, so at the end of the day, our goal as a company is to help organizations be successful with business continuity. It's what leads us in everything that we do. It's why we create a software tool, you know, like 10 years ago, because we, we saw a gap there. It's what drives our consulting practice. And so we see the need to be able to serve both sets of, of folks. And they have relatively distinct needs uh, in many cases. The folks new to business continuity, you know, they're trying to get their arms wrapped around all this stuff. So that's where the build process really helps it provides kind of the end-to-end -end training for them while we're building the program with them. And we found that to be a really successful model of kind of um, train-as-you-go type of thing. It's sometimes a pretty big struggle for folks. You know, and they go to like the one-week-long uh, BCI 
immersion training. That's good to get a, a good basis of, of methodology, but we found it to be most effective to, to work with them over time in smaller increments so that they can learn something, apply it, and then come back and learn more. And so that kind of iteration is what we focus on on the build side. On the Evolve side, it's very similar, but we're working with what they already have and understanding just where the gaps are. So rather than trying to reinvent the wheel, we work with everything that they currently have, figure out where the most important gaps are, and then facilitate the, the closure of those gaps and the training that goes along with uh, each of the pieces that we're implementing. So that's kind of how the, the, the two match up, is it's actually kind of pretty closely aligned to our, our build process and our Evolve process. Wow, so you guys have definitely taken some time to map that out, but also to make sure that you're meeting the needs of people no matter where they are in their profession. Right. As I heard you speak and as I Googled you <laughs> <laughs> and looked at your, your website, I thought about BCOS and it sounds like another approach. And so for our listeners, you all may be aware of a former podcast that we did with another practitioner speaking on the topic of adaptive business continuity and that approach. As I listened to you, the first thought I said was, it sounds like kind of the strategy or the intent of adaptive. But then when I looked at the website and, and heard you speak, I heard business impact analysis, the risk assessment. And so those are polar opposites right. of the approaches. And right. so I just wanted to get your thoughts and, and your feedback on what are your thoughts about adaptive? Is Does it work? Does it not work? Why do you think we need the BIA? Why not? And the risk assessment. I mean, just sure. tell me more from your perspective. I, I love healthy conversations, whether you agree or whether you disagree. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I used one of those, uh, those watchwords, BIA, right? <laughs> Adaptives banned that. Uh, so, so I'll be honest. So, so first, just for context, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not an adaptive expert, but I, I have read the book and the manifesto and, and things like that. I think that it's an interesting question in terms of the difference. So the differences are, are quite large, honestly. Our focus is... Certainly, it includes doing a BIA for one, so that's a pretty big difference. But at a higher level, our focus is on providing the tactics that we know work in a relatively opinionated way, a relatively specific way. As far as I understand, the adaptive uh, focus is a little bit more as a, like a higher level kind of set of principles and, and things like that that people can then adapt and, and take in. Not not unlike agile, uh, you know, as a framework, right? Where agile as a idea is part of the ancestry of adaptive, I think is kind of the underlying thing there. So I think it's kind of two different pieces to the coin. Like I said, kind of going back, we built the BCOS process in response to kind of some of the, the struggles that we're seeing. I see lots of people struggling with the BIA, but I don't think it's because the BIA is bad. I think it's in most cases because they haven't taken the step of frame um, to bring focus to the program first. That's pretty common and that they're not doing it from a top-down perspective versus you know, just trying to, to boil the ocean. So I think that those are some of the differences. The other kind of big difference that is a struggle for me to, to wrap my head around with it, adaptive is that, so we really embrace business continuity as a risk management discipline. What I mean by that is like it's not a part of risk management and it's not a part of the risk management profession, but it's in the umbrella of risk management in the same way that cyber and, and information security is and, and those types of things. And so there's some responsibilities that, at least that I ascribe to taking that viewpoint, which are that it's important to provide the business as one of the outcomes of a, of a business continuity program, a picture of the risks that they face and, and the tools to be able to, to mitigate those risks. And so 
again, my limited understanding, but my understanding from adaptive is that it's pretty narrow in terms of its focus. One doesn't embrace business continuity as a risk management discipline and constrains business continuity down to really just focusing on the recoverability aspect. And so what I've found in kind of understanding it and, and kind of reading through it is that, you know, I think it's a plausible approach for like improving recovery capabilities over time. You know, it's like an agile thing focused on, on that thing. But most of the programs that I work with, they don't really live in that world. Like they're, they're focused on not just recovery, but also, you know, like survivability or resilience of the thing to, to begin with, prevention of business interruptions. In many cases, crisis management, except for in the largest organizations. In many cases, some level of uh, IT disaster recovery. You know, so all those pieces, it's kind of weird because at, at some level, they, they seem like similar types of ideas, but, you know, once you really kind of look at a, a detailed version of it, they look like pretty different animals to me. But again, I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts. You've got, you've got a background there, right? <laughs> so here's a comment and an observation. So I learned yesterday at the executive views on risk management at the DRJ conference, one of the executives on the panel shared that business continuity from his perspective is also under the risk umbrella. And, and he said there's two instances where it falls into BCP, and that's when companies want to accept the risk or mitigate the risk, that falls into the business continuity hat. So from that perspective, yeah. <laughs> that makes sense to me because then we're kind of left with the remaining risk. So what are the things that we can put in place to better manage that? so that in the event those things actually come into existence, we have strategies and plans to address that. So you are giving me looks here, the audience, <laughs> and the viewers can't see it, so please share <laughs> your facial expressions. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that, so risk is a tough one because those guys don't really have their act together either. <laughs> you know, what's the, what's the clear, concise methodology for risk? Like, yeah, we got ISO 31000, sure, but uh, you want to talk about like a, a high-level framework. You know, there, there's no management system for risk management. There's a management system for business continuity. Like, for those of you that are listening that aren't familiar, having a business continuity management system is a big deal. The other management systems that exist, like quality management systems and environmental management systems, they are closed loop proven ways to achieve a particular goal. And so having it built like a management system you know, that's adopted by hundreds of thousands of companies really, that's a big deal. And so, so anyway, the risk discipline overall, they're still trying to get their stuff together, I guess is what I would say. <laughs> so when I say it's a risk discipline, I mean like from a, the biggest tent perspective, we are helping, we're, we're one of probably the hundreds of things in a company that is doing something to manage risk. And it's kind of similar to resiliency, right? Like you, you use the term resiliency, but like, man, that's like using the term cloud. Like it's, that's a big idea and nobody's really built a profession around it. Nobody's really built a discipline around it. Nobody's got like a closed loop system the way that business continuity management or uh, environmental management or quality management have, have defined beginnings, ends, and, and content. And so th that's what I mean is once you start getting up into that realm, it gets a little bit ethereal mm -hmm. to me, and that's where I get a little bit lost. I, I'm more just talking at the, at the broadest level. There's a certain level of risk that we're helping to manage. Whether or not there's a risk management function at a company or not, we're helping to manage it. And so if we see it in that light, then we've got an obligation to inform management about what the risk is at some level. 
and give them some kind of tools to do something about yeah. it. Yeah. So. so this conversation reminds me of, I think, one of the first podcasts that we did with Cheyenne talking about people solutions and her experience as she's going out to recruit individuals to work with various companies, this terminology thing. You know, uh, yes. if you say business resilience, oh my God, you know, it's like, that's not technically business resilience. If right. you say business con continuity, then there's an issue with that. If you say enterprise risk management or crisis management or crisis comms, it's like, let's just agree on the definitions. <laughs> and that's a starting place. Um, so to, to, to answer your question on my thoughts about adaptive, let me give context first. Sure. So I started in the industry 10 years ago. I worked in manufacturing and aviation. I walked into an environment where we utilized Excel spreadsheets to document a BIA. Mm -hmm. uh, new, fresh, and my thoughts were, if we sell $50 million jets, why do we need a BIA? <laughs> 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 Who am I? I'm just coming out of college. So my experience with the BIA was the first go-round at a Fortune 200 company, we just send this document to the workforce in operations, in engineering, in marketing, in sales, in real estate, in corporate security, and people don't do it. They don't understand it. It's back to the conversation yesterday with the executives. We're not speaking in a language that the business understands. Right. And so you get a lot of time and a lot of resources and people do not value the program. So right. then when they see you, you kind of feel like you're devalued. Sure. Yeah, you're <laughs> so right. that was my first set of experiences. And then secondly, I don't like doing it. <laughs> I mean, just plain and simple. You know, what I like about the adaptive approach is that, quote unquote, I feel like it gives you permission to go outside of the box. And that's what I liked. Let's stretch beyond the limits. Why do I actually have to have a BIA? Because I can count on one hand how many companies that I've worked with who actually use it. And so my challenge is, is that we spend so much time developing and documenting and getting people to do what they don't want to do and they hate it, which let's use the 80-20 rule. Sure. You know, how can we spend 80% of our time on the things that actually matter? Or 20% of our time. Yeah, the, I call it the 20 year <laughs> you know I mean? Yeah. yeah, I love, yeah so you got to focus on the 20. Yeah, so let's focus on the 20. And yeah. so I think that's, from, from my perspective, that's what I've enjoyed about learning it. So yeah. I had the book as well. I listened to the webinars, and I'm a part of the think tank, which the second reason is it's a good opportunity for, for me to learn from other practitioners. And not everybody agrees with the entire methodology. You know right. what I mean? What I like is that they're pushing doors and they're knocking and forcing our industry collectively to let's think about this. Is this really the right way? Because what I don't like is I don't want to list the papers or a document that tells me I have to follow these steps because then I feel like it's not nimble. I can't be flexible. And in today's environment, our company, we work very closely in manufacturing and transportation. They're fast moving, high paced, a lot of demands. They want you in and out. And mm -hmm. the BIA has never been in and out for me. So yeah. that's kind of what I like about it. <laughs> yeah, so let me give you a different picture. I mean, it's a little bit, we're kind of reducing this to this the BIA, right? But regardless, I'm, I'm going to, I know there's more to the, the question beyond that, but in our limited time, I'm going to give you a different picture. So I've got about 20 consultants. We have about 20 consultants at Evolution that are doing business continuity planning every day. If you were to pull them, you would find that like 80% of them, their favorite part of the job is doing a business impact analysis. And so... Did you pull them? 
Uh, I talk to him a lot, yeah. <laughs> when I ask him, like, what's your favorite part of the job? Yeah, they're pretty consistent that they love doing the business impact analysis. But, but here's the difference. Here's, here, let me paint for you the picture of, of the difference. Uh, and again, we're probably going to fall back to semantics in a minute, but uh, let's try. So when we do a business impact analysis, first we start with that frame piece, focus, clarity on what we're trying to protect. And once we have that, a, a list, it's normally 10 to 15 products and services written as actions. So if you're in the manufacturing space, it's produce a jet, or it's take orders, or fly planes, or you know, whatever it might be. So an action written as a product or service, the universal one is pay employees. Everyone likes to do that. <laughs> in the frame process, we're also getting a time frame for that from the executives of what their rough tolerance is in broad terms, like never down, an hour, eight hours, three days a week. Just give me a sense of it. Once we get that and the executives are buying to that, the whole BIA process becomes a simple process of understanding what is needed to deliver on those products and services. It becomes a little treasure hunt across the organization and we're rapidly discarding things. Marketing, you're gone, internal audit, see you later. We're just gonna talk to, to these kind of core groups and, and understand in those groups, what do you need to be able to do this thing that the executives say they wanna protect? It becomes a really interesting process for our consultants to go and understand, and they end up understanding in many cases the business better than almost anybody in the organization because they've got the full picture of how the most important things at the company are delivered. Mm -hmm. In some cases, you can't boil the ocean. Like in manufacturing, your aerospace example, well, if you want a list of equipment that's needed to be able to produce a plane, good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine. Then let's back off of that. Just tell me the ones that you only have one of. Mm -hmm. Like, let's just get the single points of failure. That's a good start. And so all the BIA process that we're executing is trying to do is understand how the things are connected to products and services and understand roughly the impact. It really minimizes the impact side because there's nothing to sell anymore. I don't need to sell executives on some cost of downtime. They already told me what the tolerance is. So the only thing I have to sell them on is if I want to change the time frame they gave me. I normally am coming back to them and telling them it's either shorter or later and what are the reasons why and, and they go with that. So it, it becomes a lot lighter. Now, if I were to guess, what you're about to tell me is that what Adaptive sub suggests instead of a BIA is pretty similar to what I just described. And that's why I'm saying we'll probably fall back to semantics because at the end of the day, you got to know the things that are needed to be able to deliver the things that are important. Yes. And so if we call that a BIA <laughs> or we don't, you know, this is me shaking my hands and saying, like, well, whatever. So that's what we call it, or that's what we do inside of the BIA, which, by the way, aligns 100% to what ISO asks for. If you read what the BIA section of ISO says, that's what they ask you to do, is map your products and services to the resources that they require. I think, the, honestly, the, the big problem is that people get stuck. First of all, they shortchange products and services. They don't really do that step. So they have to cover everybody, and then it becomes um, a swamp that they can never get out of. So I'm sorry, there's a long picture. No, but... no, it's good. So one more thought, and then we're going to wrap it up, guys. Yep. So um, we could go here for days. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I sat in on a session yesterday. Uh, Charlie Brown presented on CIPOC slaying the BIA. So yep. CIPOC, for those who may not know, um, it stands for Suppliers, Inputs, processes, outputs, and customers. And so from your perspective, let's focus on what we need and let's throw away the rest. Right. And so why can or can't you utilize the SIPOC method from a project management perspective instead of a BIA? I don't think of them as an either or. We actually use SIPOC in our BIAs as well. One way or another, you're figuring out yep. what's needed to be able to deliver stuff, right? And so 
in the picture I just described, we use SIPOC as a kind of a mnemonic and a tool as we get into a department to understand, make sure that we're covering all the pieces. In other cases, we just make sure that we're covering, you know, the standard resource dependencies, technology, people, equipment, suppliers, facilities. That's an important one. So in either case, it's a mapping exercise. We're still understanding impact, especially at the resource level, because you have to understand if you lose this particular resource, like a piece of equipment or an application or something, you gotta understand how big a deal that is. So you gotta quantify it in some way, or at least qualify it in, in some way, but at the end of the day, yeah, uh, we, we use SIPOC inside of the BIA process. Awesome. So guys, we need to have more of these conversations next yeah. time, uh, DRJ. Let's see if we can get a panel going. That'll be pretty, pretty cool. Yeah. So I'm going to wrap it up because we, again, are in Orlando at the DRJ conference and we have sunshine and water that's waiting for us in Disney. <laughs> so Rob, do you have any published materials as well as any places where our listeners can find you and your team? Yeah, absolutely. So evolution.com. Uh, and if you go to slash BCOS, that provides an overview of uh, the BCOS process. And in about uh, about five months, we'll actually be uh, releasing a book as well that uh, Brian's writing. Congratulations. And yeah. so I'm assuming that'll be Amazon, audio. Yep, all the, awesome. all the standard places. I love it. Yeah. So, folks, there you have it. Uh, thanks for tuning in to Business Resilience Decoded with Disaster Recovery Journal and Asphalus Advisors. We have two actions for you. Subscribe and share and look out for future episodes. Business Resilience Decoded is produced and edited by John Seals. For more information, visit drj.com decoded and asphalusadvisors.com decoded. Write to us on Twitter at BRDecoded.